You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Chris Jennings. Today we got a great guest. We have Field Hudnall. Field is one, a Yeti hunting ambassador on be- coming on the show on behalf of Yeti. Two, he's also a world goose calling champion and he's the owner of Field Proven Calls. Field, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Chris. How you been, man? Good, man. That's a, that was a long intro. I about ran out of air on that one. But it, it's <laughs> it's great to have you on the show. And I know uh, most of our audience is very familiar with you. Um, you know, I've seen you from past episodes of DUTV. You know, you've been in the magazine. They probably see it some of these shows, probably using some of your calls. But just for some of our listeners who don't know you, um, kind of give everyone a little bit of a background of where you're at, where Field Proven is headquartered, and, you know, how you uh, came to be where you're at today. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Um, no, so I reside in Westport, Kentucky. We're about 30 minutes or 30 miles northeast of Louisville. Uh, right on the Ohio River. I mean, in fact, sitting here at my computer, I can see the Ohio River from where I'm sitting. Um, and that's where my brother, he lives. Uh, he's also co-owner in Field Proven Calls with myself. And he lives three streets over and our call shop is literally probably only two streets away. Um, so we all, you know, we keep it right here. And the Ohio River is where I do most of my hunting. Um, we're going on about I think we're going on our 10th year for field proven calls and we make duck, goose and turkey calls. Um, as far as call production, it's, it's really the only thing I've done my entire life. Um, ever since, uh, college, um, I started, uh, working for an outfitter in Northwest Texas, got in, uh, lesser Canada hunts and, uh, at a place called Webfoot connection. And then from there I took a job with, uh, Fred Zink, up in Ohio and worked for Fred for eight years. Um, we were actually located in Dayton, Ohio at the time before the company was relocated to Port Clinton and started doing call production, call design, video production. And, um, and then from there did a lot of work with, uh, Avery Outdoors, um, which is, you know, another, uh, Memphis based company and, uh, also a Yeti ambassador and probably, you know, six of the funnest years of my life you was hosting uh, DUTV. So pretty much waterfowl and waterfowl calls is really the only thing that I'm <laughs> somewhat decent at. Um, so it's, you know, it's been my full-time living and uh, enjoyed every minute of it. Absolutely. No, that's awesome. And I think our, our paths first crossed and I want to say it was when you were with Zinc and, but maybe shooting some video with Avery or something. I, I can't even really remember. It has, it's literally been, over 10 years, I believe. And I remember we were at a Cabela's. So this was actually when I was with Field Proven Calls. I remember you were at the Cabela's uh, Classic, um, their goose calling contest, and you recorded a short clip of, I think, of me blowing a call. And I think it's still on YouTube, if I'm not mistaken. Somehow, and that's a funny story, because somehow I got roped into, I got asked to be a judge of that duck and goose calling competition. And I had oh, wow. never, I had never done that before. Yeah. Um, and I walked in and I'm just like, Hey guys, like I've never done this before. <laughs> they're like, well, do you know, you know, and I'm like, how do you score it? How do you do this? And I'm, I'm like, I know what a goose call needs to sound like, but I wasn't really, yeah. I had to really catch up on like the routines and what the, how that competition calling um, really, you know, every aspect of it, I had to learn that in about an hour. And, uh, and I was, I was hoping that I wasn't going to be the worst judge. And, and luckily there was a couple world champion callers who were also on the, on the judges uh, line at, at the judges table. And they're like, okay, you know, if anyone, I think it scores one to a hundred and they're like, all right, if they get up on stage and get through their routine, that starts at a 70. He's like, because it's hard just to get on stage. And I was like, right. That, that's right. I'm not getting on stage. <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah, no, that was that was a good experience for me. And I I remember shooting that clip and posting that up. Yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Man, those were those were fun times. I miss which you know, calling contests, pretty much every contest that I know of got shut down last year um because of COVID. The World Goose got shut down, World Duck. And it's just been kind of a shell shock to a lot of uh, competition callers out there. I don't compete nearly like what I used to um, because it is, it's a young man's game. Uh, when you're young and you know, you, you're not, you don't have kids or full-time job. You literally practice blowing a goose call as much as you can. And as you get older, it's just, you know, it's hard to find time for that and the lung capacity to uh, execute those routines. But I just know last year with shows being shut down, the calling contest being shut down, it really, you know, it, it stinks because you miss seeing a lot of those people that you might only see a handful of times a year, but you know, are as close as family to you. Oh yeah. I think one of the, you know, the only duck calling comp duck and goose, I believe is going to be at the ducks unlimited expo uh, at the end of June. You know, I think that's going to be oh, the yeah. first one to kick off. There may be some other ones that I'm, I'm not aware of throughout the country, but I know that's going to be the first big one um, that, that will kick off. So, so hopefully that'll get things going and, and the competition callers will be able to get back on stage and do what they do. Absolutely. Yeah. I know they're looking forward to it. That's for sure. <laughs> well, that, you know, that kind of leads me to my first question and, and really, you know, competition calling is so much different, but what got you into, you know, wanting to be a, a, a competition caller, wanting to get up on stage, like I said, so hard to do. Um, what was the first thing that made you really want to get into that? I think for me, it was basically just the love. Uh, so I'm a very competitive person, but I'm not growing up. I was never into sports, um, traditional sports, as far as, you know, baseball, football. Um, I played football all through my high school. I don't want to call it career, but all through high school. And honestly, I almost hated every minute of it. <laughs> um, it just, uh, it wasn't my thing, but I still did it just for, you know, the physical aspect of it, the, the competition side of it. Um, but I got into calling contest because I truly loved calling ducks and geese. Um, I love now at that time when I was younger, um, we didn't have turkeys here in Kentucky. Um, and I love turkey hunting, turkey hunting and duck waterfowl and turkey is they're fighting for first place. One of my favorite things to do in this world. And honestly, turkey might be pulling ahead just a little bit. I just love the springtime. I love calling turkeys. Um, it's also got, it's also springtime right now. So if exactly. I ask you that same question and uh, you're sitting in a field in Saskatchewan in September, what answer would you say? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And after this past waterfowl season, I can promise you I was looking forward to turkey season. Um, but no, just uh, I love the idea of uh, of calling any type of wild animal. If I lived out west, I'd be an elk hunter. Um, I love calling coyotes. And just the idea that, you know, you can have these species of waterfowl migrating from Canada all the way down through the states and you can literally sit there with, you know, decoys help, but they respond to that call. And the fact that you can, I don't want to say fully control them, but you have a lot of influence in what those birds are going to do as far as attracting them um, with a call. So then the, the competitive side of me, just I wanted to get better. And there was no better way to get better than to just focus on it year round and calling contests allowed me, gave me that Avenue to do that for, for a purpose. Um, and I'll be honest with you early on when I first got into it, you know, I had dreams and aspirations of being a professional contest caller, making a living. Well, that's not, that's not realistic. Um, it's, um, you know, you're going to spend more money in travel and entry fees and what you're going to get back as far as winnings. Now, don't get me wrong. The winnings are nice, um, before taxes. And, um, but it's, you know, it's just, you get to meet so many great people and it has, it opened up a lot of doors for me. Um, now granted when you win a calling contest, um, no, you know, people aren't going to come knocking on your door for anything. Um, but you get to meet a lot of people and you make great connections. And for me, um, it allowed me to, um, you know, to get into the guiding positions that I did and then into the work positions. Um, there's no greater. It, so it's funny because for me, a lot of guys will blow a duck routine or a goose routine almost note for note. 
And like Hunter Grounds, one of the greatest contest callers of all time, and you know the the late Tim Grounds, um, two of the best there is. And I know Hunter, if I'm not mistaken, I think he calls note for note. So like every note is scripted out. He knows exactly what he's going to do. That's not how my brain works. Um, I practice, for example, I can't remember the words to songs, you know, for the most part. Um, my routines, I remember, I know the segment that I want to do. And then, but everything is pretty much freestyle. So when I get up there on stage, it's, I have no idea what notes are going to come out until it's time to, to do those notes. So every contest is almost like walking up on stage for a test I haven't studied for. <laughs> and I just wing it in the nerves. I've never gotten used to it. Um, but, but you know, it's, uh, for, it's somewhat worked out. I mean, there's, there's a lot better callers than I am out there. And I just, you know, was, uh, fortunate to do well and, you know, quite a few of them, but. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's one of those things I would tell you that that's an absolutely terrible approach to take, just winging it when you get up there, but it seems like it's really worked out for you. It's so, awful. The yeah. nerves tear me up more and more as I get older. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and that's the one thing that I've, I've always respected about that, you know, people getting up on stage and going through that routine. And, um, I think the last calling competition that I was at was at max. They did the, uh, um, speckle belly goose calling competition and seeing some of those guys yeah. get up there. And I, you know, I, I certainly consider myself a, a speckle belly goose caller, but also fairly novice in at this stage and seeing those guys get up there and do that. Like there's some people that I hunt with that I, I don't even get my goose call out. You know, that, that tells you how my nerves would work, you know? Um, and these yeah. are guys that I hunt with all the time. I'm like, I don't want to get that goose call out. So I understand how that nerves could definitely take over. Um, right. But right. that also transitioned, you know, you know, all these different championships you mentioned, you know, uh, World Goose Calling Champ twice, you know, Live Duck, World Open, International, um, you know, that opened some doors and that kind of leads us to, um, you know, field proven. And when did you decide that, all right, I'm going to start making my own calls. I'm going to start doing this and, you know, on my own. So it actually started, um, I'm trying to remember the timeline exactly. Um I think I started working for Zinc Calls around 2000, I want to say 2000, August of 2002. Um, and then worked for Fred for, I want to say, eight years. And basically, so we, re we relocated the company to Port Clinton, Ohio at the time. And during that time, I you know, met my wife, um, Jessica, and then... My parents and my grandparents back here in Kentucky were getting up in age. And I was just realizing that I really missed living on the river. I really missed my turkey hunt and I really missed just Kentucky. Um, and I kind of wanted to, you know, step back, slow down a little bit, kind of get back to my roots. And after I left Zinc Calls, I did just video work for probably two years. Um, I did some projects with uh, Tony Vandemore um, of Habitat Flats, Ira McCauley. Um, we released a couple of videos underneath uh, their brand. Um, and I started actually a video production company. And my plan was to just do video. And I, I was going to do weddings too. And I actually did one wedding. <laughs> and within the first 30 seconds of meeting the bride, I knew I'd made a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I was like, this is not what I enjoy doing. I love, you know, videoing hunts, um, which after about two years of just doing video production, and you got to remember too, back then, um, DVDs were a big thing. And I, I created for Zinc under the Zinc brand, Ah, man, I'm trying to, I can't even remember how many DVDs, full length hunting DVDs. And we sold them to Cabela's, Bass Pro, Max, Walmart. I mean, just the, there was a lot of companies that were thriving and just making DVDs. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's kind of how the duck, you know, uh, not Duck Dynasty, but Duck Commander, mm -hmm. you know, they started out with the VHS tapes. And I think in like 83, um, when we started, we used to provide hunts for Mossy Oaks Whistle and Wing series. Yeah. And then at Zinc, we decided to start doing our own brand. Well, I guess when I moved back to Kentucky, I was like, man, I'm going to just do video, continue these DVD projects. Well, then <laughs> DVDs was, you know, a very, was a dying format. Yeah. Um, and then what it boiled down to was I was still contest calling and I really missed, I was going to shows and people were bringing calls up to me for retuning. 
And I realized that I truly missed building duck and goose calls. Um, and that's where I kind of got the idea. I was like, man, I need to get back into this. And that's where field proven calls was kind of created. Um, and fast forward, you know, nine and a half, 10 years from then. And it's still, we're still doing great. We're, uh, <laughs> we're, we're very busy. Um, but no, I love my, so I mentioned before, you know, how all the direct consumer shows were, uh, were canceled. It was a nice break because for, oh man, not only the 10 years of field proven calls, but all during my years at Zinc, we do a lot of direct consumer shows and you get to meet a lot of great customers. Well, one, it was kind of a welcome to break to not be home, not to be gone the entire month of February, but about middle of the ways through February, I really missed the shows because there's so many great people we get to meet, talk to. And I just, and that's kind of how we do our product and development. Um, anytime we release new calls, we go to shows, we have people try them, we want their feedback and we kind of look at the trend of, you know, where we have in voids in our lineup. And we, that's how we design our calls is through, uh, just really the input from our customers. What was the, what was the first call that you kind of brought to the market? Do you remember exactly which one that was? Uh, with field proven calls, mm-hmm. it was, it was the adrenaline. Okay. Um, because at the time I was still doing contest calling. And I needed a updated contest call that was that would compete with the trend of how contest routines were going. Um, contest routines are always changing. They're always evolving. Um, you can look back 15, you know, 20 years ago at the sounds that were winning contests and what's winning today. And it's completely different. There's been a lot of changes, you know, between uh, then and now as well. Um, routines were getting faster, wider range of sounds, more low end. Um, and you just, I needed to design a call that I was comfortable blowing that would create that sound at a competitive level. Yeah. And just talking about goose call sounds. I mean, just when you say that, I'm thinking, I think, you know, used to see the, the big goose flutes. Yeah. Uh, That's kind of the, kind of what I grew up on the mid nineties there in Indiana. Uh, you know, that's what everyone that I knew had one of those. And I I can't, I can't remember the manufactured ones that we all had, but, um, that sound is so much different than seeing, you know, someone on stage now with, like you said, it's so much faster because those, those larger goose flutes were more, you know, it was almost like a drawn out cluck. Um, Absolutely. And now it's just, it's so much more crisp and, you know, um, calling so much faster. And I don't know if that's, right. I don't know if that's us or if the geese have actually adjusted to that or what the deal is, but. Uh, yeah. Uh, so it's funny you say that you mentioned the flutes because when I got into contest calling, I think my first contest was in 99 or 98, I believe. And it's funny because when you would go to the West coast or I'm sorry, to the East coast, like in Maryland, or if you would kind of go to the Midwest around Iowa, Illinois, or even Minnesota, if you went to, when I got into it, if you went to Illinois and you were blowing a short read goose call, there was a hundred percent chance you were not going to win. Um, at that time, the flutes were dominate. Um, and really it was the 10 grounds God's best. That was the, the style of flute that everybody was using. And at that time, um, Tim was still blowing Jeff foils, Fred Zink, Sean Stahl was blowing a God's best. And those calls were so loud and they had so much power and crack. I mean, I remember walking into my first contest room and Sean Stahl actually walked in. I've told, I've had this conversation with him countless times. He walks in there with that lanyard full of those bands. And I was my, it was my first contest. And he picks up that guy's best and he rips off a honk. It sounded like a rifle going off in there, that crack. And I was literally terrified. <laughs> I was like, there was no way I'm going to compete with these guys. And back then there was, you know, just a, a, your, a contest that was only, you know, it was paying out a thousand dollars. You would have 50 to 60 callers and they were truly the best in the country from, you know, they came from all over. Um, and then as contests kind of evolved, short reads became, uh, more refined, um, more, uh, more versatile as far as your low wind sounds, your cracks, your speed, you could get more tones out of it. To this day, I still believe that a flute call truly has the most realistic moan and honk available. Like a short read cannot match a flute in just your moan and your honks. Um, but where the short reads do offer advantages is because you can show the excitement 
that those geese, they do get excited and they do get those higher pitch sounds. And that's where the, the short read does excel. Yeah, because you can rip off 10 or 12 notes, even more, you know, really quick with that short read. It's almost snappy, you know. Absolutely. And really, the short reads are more user-friendly than what those flutes were. Um, they take less air. Now, granted, the mechanics, um, there's more uh, – how do I de- describe this? There's more um, technical mouth mechanics to get those sounds out, but once you get them, it truly requires a lot less air, and it's they're a lot more user-friendly in the long run. Yeah, I, I think that's the way that I, I kind of describe it to some people, um, that it's – they are a little more technical, but once you learn that short read, and that's and that's one thing that kind of leads me into a good question for you. Um, you know, we get emails here at DU all the time, like, "Hey, you know, I want to I want to learn how to blow a short read." And, you know, and we've even done videos on this. We've got them on our YouTube channel. I think you've done videos for us on this. Um, but you know, just kind of explain to our own someone who's like, "Man, I'm gonna I want to pick up a short read Canada Goose Call." And what's my first step? You know, what is what are the, the beginning stages of becoming a goose caller using a short read? The number one thing when, and again, it is so much easier to teach somebody in person than it is through a video or, um, you know, through just audio. But the biggest thing to understand about short read goose calls is you're developing muscle memory. And it's really no different than anything else you're going to do, whether it be signing your name, throwing a baseball, shooting a shotgun. You have to develop consistent muscle memory and you do it the same way every time. Uh, So when somebody, you know, somebody comes up to our table or if I'm going to teach somebody to blow a goose call, literally the first step is just properly holding the call. Um, Because when you put that call in your hand, if you're not holding it, if you're not going to hold it consistently the same way every time, you're going to get different sounds. And then when you start trying to troubleshoot, well, is it my hand placement? Is it my mouth placement? Is it my air presentation? The idea is to eliminate variables. So when you hold the call the exact same way every time, that's a variable you're eliminating. When you put that call to your mouth the exact same way every time, that's another variable you eliminate. And then then you can focus on your air presentation, your tongue movement. Uh, But I think the number one biggest misconception that people have with goose calls that I see across the board um, where people can literally they can jump leaps and bounds by eliminating one bad habit is grunting into a goose call. And that's because there's a lot of instructional out there where people have always said, just grunt into the call to get that deep sound. And that as far as getting a variety of technical advanced sounds, that couldn't be further from the truth. So we're developing muscle memory. We're controlling that call with our, with our human capabilities. Okay. I don't know about you, but I don't grunt on a regular basis. You know, I don't go through the day grunting back and forth to people. So therefore I have no way of controlling my grunts, but what I do use is my voice. You use your voice every single day from the day you can, you know, you say your first word and we have incredible control over our vocal cords and our voice. So The idea is those low sounds on a goose call. Don't grunt, but just use your deepest voice possible to control that call. And when people, and I love when I can actually work with somebody, if I can have 15 minutes or 10 minutes with somebody, teaching them to control that call with their voice, when they hit it, their eyes, they've entered a whole new world. Their tone is so much richer, it's deeper, and you can just see it's written across their face like, oh, I'm going to have some fun with this, you know, it truly sounds like a goose. Yeah. And so, and then once you get those initial, those first few steps, um, and then you're moving into some more of the technical side, you're talking back pressure and, you know, that's when you get into, um, being able to create the multiple, multiple grunts and moans and clucks and all that. I mean, that's where that really comes from, right? Yeah, absolutely. So really, when you control that call with your voice, you're you're creating the beginning sounds of a honk. And then really every sound you're ever going to do is is just a variety of that honk. So you've got that low end sound and then the break. Well, if you shorten it up, then you created a cluck. All right. Well, then from the if you drop off the break and you do just the low end sound, you're then creating just the murmur, which is that feeding sound starting and stopping on that low end murmur. 
Well, then if you just push the air and you don't break it over, then you're getting into a moan. There's really only about four sounds. So you got your murmur, your cluck, your honk, and your moan. Okay. Those are really the only four sounds that that goose is capable of doing. But when that goose gets excited, they're going to chop up and do varieties and different um, interpretations of all those sounds, which is then where you get into your sound combinations. They're going to do them higher pitch. They're going to do them deeper. And they're going to chop them so much into where you get um, your, I don't want, they're more advanced sounds like your spit notes, um, your double clucks. But as a goose caller, now I'm just talking about just going out and, you know, hunting geese, your honk, your cluck, your moan, and your murmur. If you can execute those four sounds and then learn to put those sounds with other sounds. So like a cluck and a moan, that's where you're going to create your sound combinations, which then create your double clucks and learning to execute those calls at different speeds and pitches is how you're going to show excitement. The best goose caller in the world, and I'm not talking about goose call blower, I'm talking about a goose caller as far as calling geese in a hunting situation, is the hunter that can take that call and they can go as high pitch and as fast as they want or in a matter of a second, go relaxed and deep as they want because you're showing excitement and intensity and that's what those geese are going to respond to. It's not the guy that can blow the call the fastest but it's the guy that can change the intensity and the excitement of that call in a matter of seconds. And that's how those, and that's just, and then that goes into just being, you know, an outdoorsman and a hunter um, and having field experience, no pun intended, field experience on reading those geese and what sounds to give those geese at certain times, or sometimes even not giving them any sound. Um, And every day is different. Every flock is different. And that, that to me is what is so magical and exciting about duck and goose hunting is because every day you go out there, they might, you know, every flock, some flocks want more calling. Some flocks don't want as much calling. And, uh, that's just the, you know, that's the excitement of it. If it was the same, every time you went out, it would lose its, you know, it would lose its magic. That's right. If it was easy, anyone would do it. Right. Right. Exactly. Outfitters. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Go out of business really quick. <laughs> you and I have talked before. Um, a couple years back on a, on a feature article. Um, but you hunt over water a lot and lot. that probably yes, lends the, the river probably lends, um, lends itself to you ending up, you know, hunting geese over water quite a bit. Do your calling tactics change, um, when you're hunting over water rather than in like an agricultural field? Absolutely. Um, sometimes they'll be very similar. Um, but where we hunt and again, you can't really classify, you know, all rivers, all rivers aren't the same. All big water's not the same. Um, the area that we hunt in, it's a very deep river. Um, we don't have a lot of sandbars, not like you're going to see on the Mississippi River or the Missouri River or the North or South Platte River. Um, we, it's basically one deep channel. So there's really no, there's no food sources on the river. And what we're trying to replicate where we're at is basically resting areas. Um, so when you have geese migrating or if they're just transitioning from, say, a roost area to a feed area, we run big spreads just trying to make it look like a comfortable loafing area. Um, and really, so what you lose is you lose the uh, you lose the food aspect of it. So they're not coming there to feed. So you're just trying to make it look comfortable. So it depends on the groups, the groups of geese. Like when you have geese that are very high and they're formed, you know, they're V'd up and they're in formation and you know, they have no plans on stopping on where you're at. We do get very loud and aggressive um, just because you're trying to break them down because you got to figure from their view, they see this massive river and no matter how big you think your decoy spread is, it looks like it's barely a blip on the radar from their view. 
Um, so we will be loud and aggressive just to try to get their attention and break them down. And then as soon as we do get their attention and we start breaking them down where they're breaking formation, we change our calling style completely. We get a lot more relaxed, um, a lot more just moans. We don't get as high pitched or is with the sharper cracks because that sound on the water, it's like a megaphone. Um, that hard water surface, it's, you can be too loud very quickly. Um, and then we just get relaxed and then we'll just sit there and we'll get more excited if we start to lose their interest. Um, but again, that's not every flock, you know, every flock's different. The hardest geese for us to call are the ones that are actually somewhat low cruising down the river, not making a sound at all because they're probably your locals that know exactly where they're going. Um, and when you do take that food, when you take the, the food attracting out of it, um, it's, it's much more difficult to convince them to land within your 30 yard gun range, especially on big water because Canada geese by nature, they like to land out in the open and then they'll swim into the, into the flock to where when they're flying into a food situation, they're depending on how hungry they are. When it's cold, they will land right where they want to immediately start feeding. So you have a lot more influence and control that way to where on big water, they naturally want to land out wide and then swim in. So to get them to, you know, land within that magic gun range, um, it can be tricky. And there's, you have more failed attempts and you have successful attempts, which makes those successful, um, you know, when they do it right, it just makes it that much more rewarding. Yeah, there's there's something about hunting, you know, the big Canada geese over water too. I, you know, I, yeah. you see a lot of videos and, and people hunt over fields, but man, there's just something special about hunting them over water for sure. I, I kind of grew up doing that and haven't done it in a while, um, but it's it, it it changes the dynamic of the whole hunt. Um, absolutely and it's I, I enjoy it sounds like sounds like you like it just as much it's uh it, man i love it like i just i'm i'm a river rat i mean it's my like i there's no way i could imagine myself living anywhere else where i can't see the river because you know we catfish on it we run trout lines we duck hunt it we you know we hang out there on the summertime you know just we water ski it's it's just it's a massive backyard that you know, I don't have to pay a mortgage on it. Yeah, that's right. And it's there for the enjoyment. And and I love, and again, the way our seasons are set up when we're out there goose hunting. Um, so where I'm at is probably out of all the places I've ever been, able, I've been very blessed and fortunate to hunt. Um, right here where I'm at is probably the worst and most inconsistent <laughs> I've ever had. <laughs> but it's my favorite. Yeah. Um, and kind of our, uh, my, uh, my rule or my slogan around here is we don't shoot a lot of anything, but we shoot a little bit of everything. And it's really, I mean, with the exception of like a Harlequin or some just crazy off species, we've shot almost everything out here. I mean, we've shot long tails, we've shot scoters. Now, granted, that's, that is a, <laughs> that's a very, very rare. Uh, but we shoot, we'll get Amos backs, redheads, we get, you know, a variety of divers, puddler, puddle ducks, mallards, widgeon, pintails. Um, it's just, it's cool to see what all comes through here. Um, but then again, sometimes you won't see anything come through here. There's a lot of days. If we shoot one duck, sometimes we call that a river limit. We're happy to get it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I grew up on the Wabash, so a little bit north and west. Oh, yeah. Of you. Yeah. You know what um, I'm talking about. I know exactly. I mean, <laughs> I'm the same way. Like, I, I, every year I put this plan together to try and get back and hunt the Wabash. And the last couple of years, it didn't, didn't work out, but, um, you know, I love hunting there because it's where I grew up, where I started hunting. Um, yeah. but there are days where you could run the river and not see a duck. Absolutely. You know? And, and that can be frustrating, especially moving down here where, um, you know, these birds are wintering like up in your area and where I'm from, those birds are passing through and typically exactly. one way or the other, um, east, west, north, south, they're not really hanging out there for very long. No. So, uh, <laughs> right. when you have your good days, they're awesome. And so, and so you, you really enjoy that. And, and sometimes even there, it takes additional effort to get less birds, but it, if for some reason the, uh, the reward is, is there it's mentally for sure, but it's, I totally understand where you're coming from on the Ohio. Absolutely. And now, did you ever hunt the white river up there as well? Oh Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, yeah. And, and that's a little, you know, the why is it was a little tricky for me because I was, you know, probably an hour and a half away, maybe two hours away from some of the areas that I hunted. Um, so that, that put us at a little bit of a disadvantage because we didn't know a lot of landowners over there. We had a few. That's when we went in over there. But, um, yeah. you know, the Wabash was really where we spent the majority of our time. And, uh, you know, that's it, it was just it, it, like you said, it's just a playground that, I, you know, you didn't have to, to pay for. But, you know, that really leads me into, you know, my next question for you is and this is something a little bit off topic. But, you know, the, the Ohio is big water. And you spend a lot of time out there. So, you know, just kind of give our listeners an idea, some of the safety precautions that you use on the Ohio that, you know, I, I know I grew up, you know, running the Wabash and, and it's a dangerous body of water, but it's half the size of the Ohio. So kind of explain right. to our listeners what, what you do to just at least stay safe on the water. Yeah. I mean, every, every river is different. Um, in fact, I'm going to say probably the most intimidating river I've ever hunted is probably the Missouri river. Um, just because of its current, it's always changing as far as the, the sandbars. Um, but the Ohio river, I mean, and really any body of water, um, you know, it's been very unfortunate and within my lifetime, I know, you know, way too many, I've heard way too many stories of, you know, hunters losing their lives on the river. Um, and I think what's the most dangerous thing about our river is because it is a slow moving river on average. Um, when it's a normal pool, I mean, your current might be a mile and a half, two miles an hour tops. Um, but when you do get a little bit of a high water, I mean, it'll pick up to four or five mile an hour. Um, but the biggest thing with hunting anybody waters don't get complacent. Um, always, you know, in anything you do, I don't care if it's like mowing your yard, you know, you, you build muscle memory where you jump on the mower, you turn it on, you back up and you just, your brain goes elsewhere because you've done it so many times and you're just, you're just going off of muscle memory and habit. And that's where you can get in trouble on the river because there's so many variables that, you know, don't always present themselves. Um, but just know your equipment, make sure your equipment is in, you know, good working order um, and go out there. Don't just go out on the water during duck season. Um, go out there during the summertime, go out there during the springtime. Um, because if you go out there enough, you're going to have some sort of a, you know, you're going to encounter trouble at some point in time. And the more you encounter those issues, you're not going to get into a panic mode to where when you're out there, when it's cold, the wind's blowing, um, you know, you can kind of go into a panic mode a little bit quicker when things start to go wrong. Uh, but I do not mess with fog. Uh, there's times when you go, you pull up to that ramp and you make a decision whether you're going to go on that water or not. And you have to be, you know, swallow your pride and don't just because, you know, when you make that decision that I don't feel good about going out there, it doesn't mean you're, you know, you're a wimp or you're a weak as a duck hunter. You're not as hardcore. It's just using your brain. Uh, mm -hmm. Listen to your, you know, your inside conscious, because I can tell you right now when I, when we go out there and there's a strong Northwest wind and they'll, you know, you're seeing those massive white cap rollers, there's going to be times it's like, uh, we're not going right now. It's, and I, so I mentioned fog, fog. I do not mess with, I will not mess with because that on our river is probably one of the number one killers, um, because you do have barge traffic, um, and you can get so all, the first time you get misplaced or you get, lost in fog, you'll never do it again because it is the scariest feeling in the world. Um, and just to see how messed up you can get, because, um, just a quick story. I remember this was springtime when I was in high school, a buddy of mine, we were camping on the Island, just down river from that right now. And we were running trot lines. Well, we woke up early that morning and it was fogged in and we were just, you know, we were young and didn't, you know, thought we were invincible. And I said, all right, our one trot line is literally right across the river on the Indiana bank. All we got to do is jump in the boat. And as long as we go straight, we're going to hit that bank. Well, we jumped in and when we left the, the bank, I could barely see the front of the boat. And we were in a 14 foot John boat tiller motor and we're heading across there. And I'm just sitting there holding the motor as steady and straight as I can. And I'm like, man, we should be hitting it soon. <laughs> and after a while, we didn't hit the bank. It's like, all right, this is not – now I'm getting nervous. Well, then we saw like, oh, all right, there's the tree line. We see it. Well, there's our tent. 
we literally just did a big circle and came right back to the same bank we're at. And we thought we were going straight the entire time. And at that point there, I'm like, never again, no way. Um, but what it comes down to again is just make sure your equipment's in good working order, be familiar with your equipment, um, and go with people too, that, you know, that you're comfortable with. Everyone has a job. Um, everyone kind of looks out for each other and just, uh, just use your head. Common sense, you know, is the, is the number one thing. No, that's good. And those are all, you know, awesome kind of river boating safety tips. And like you said, just using your head, common sense. Um, you know, back when I ran the river a lot, it was one of those deals where people are like, aren't you afraid, you know, to launch the boat at four 30 in the morning into the river. And I'm like, well, if you're not, if you don't have any fear, then you're, you're doing something wrong and you'll probably make a mistake. So that, exactly. that it makes you, that fear makes you a little bit more hesitant and probably keeps everyone in the boat safer. Um, definitely yeah, absolutely. Speak to that. Just, you know, having respect for the river and what it, you know, what it can do. I mean, it's, uh, like you said, if you've, you, if you don't have that knot in your stomach, I don't care how many times you go out there when you launch that boat and you're just not, all right, let's double and triple check everything. If, if you don't have that knot in your stomach, you need to stay on the ramp because that's when you, when you get complacent, that's when bad things happen. Absolutely. Hey, I want to, you know, just talking about that and, and, you know, you're hunting and, and we've had this conversation offline, but, you know, I know you have two young boys and, yeah. um, and which is awesome, but you're in that stage where you are introducing them to, to some of the things, the passions that, that you have, um, you know, how is that process going? And, and, you know, you, you mentioned they're eight and four or eight and five and, and, and that's a, that, that's, you know, that's a tough age because you want to, you want to take them sometimes, but sometimes you may not be able to, um, how's that process for you? So for me, um, it's tough. And it's, you, I mean, it's, it's, I'm so torn on what I should be doing, what I shouldn't be doing. I look back at what my father did on how he introduced my brother and I into hunting. And I'm kind of like, man, I want to, you know, I want to take the good things that he did and do them and not do the bad things. But, and it's so hard because I feel like my number one thing is I don't want to push them. Um, people, you know, have made comments like, oh man, I bet, I bet your son and your sons are already ripping on a duck and goose call. You know, I bet they were born with a call in their mouth. I'm like, no, not at all. Um, in fact, neither one of my kids know how to blow a duck call or a goose call right now. I, I don't force them on it. They hear it every, they hear it all the time. They're around it all the time. Um, and, and that's, I don't have the, I don't have an answer. You know, my whole thing is, I'm like, what I love more than anything in the outdoor world, I don't want to cram down their throat. Um, because I've seen too many times I look at, you know, whether it be a, a family where the dad was a great baseball player and he's trying to get his kids into it and he just crams it down their throat and they get burnt out on it. Um, my dad didn't force anything on us. It was just, I naturally gravitated to it. And, um, and I think that's what I'm going to do with my kids. Uh, I do take them out. We're on the river almost every weekend in the summer. And a lot of times in the weekdays, like when the weather's nice and we don't have anything to do, we literally just jump on the river. So my kids love being on the water. They're comfortable, you know, operating the boats. Um, they know the routine. And, and I think the biggest thing is, is I, I just know when I was a kid, like, there weren't the influences that there are now. What I mean by that is, as a kid, if you want to watch cartoons, you had to wait till, you know, Saturday morning cartoons and you literally had about an hour. Mm -hmm. You better get up early. And that was it, you know? And then nowadays, kids can literally go on to the smart TV and they, they have options of thousands of cartoons. There's so many more influences that is, you know, fighting for their attention to where when we were kids, you know, just going in the outdoors, it was, that was the most stimulant you could get from, for, for me anyways. And I remember, you know, waiting for Ducks Unlimited television when I was a kid and like being able, that was the only time that you could see really waterfowl hunting in other parts of the state. And I just remember sitting there watching with my dad, like, dad, you know, we're going to watch DU TV and um, just looking at all these magical places. And then when you went out hunting, you kind of envision that, man, those magical moments might happen while we're out there. 
Um, so my thing is I spend a lot of time with my kids. Um, I, my wife and I, we've made the decision that, you know, I'll do almost everything with my kids. They don't go to babysitters. They, um, every time we go out on the water, they're always with us. And it's a, they, they know that at any point in time, they can ask me to look at the guns, you know, we'll, because they know that they don't touch firearms in our house. But at any point in time, they say, dad, can we look at the guns? We'll sit for hours if have to. I'll pull every gun out, let them hold it where they're comfortable with it. They shoot BB guns. And I feel like that introduction into, you know, firearms, firearm safety, and really life and death is a big one too. You know, explaining what death is. And um, the kids, when I do come in from waterfowl hunting, they help me clean the ducks. Um, and they understand that that's where our food comes from. We, you know, we, we have the highest utmost respect for these animals. And when, when they make the decision to want to go out and pursue those animals and, you know, take a life they're they're going to, I want them to be ready, but I'm not going to force them into it. Um, I'm not one to, oh, let's go hunting and just, so that way we can get your picture with, you know, a limited ducks. Um, I, and again, I, I don't have a great answer for you cause I'm literally right in the middle of trying to figure it out on my own. Um, but I'll let them play with the duck calls and goose calls when they want to. And, uh, I don't know, man, it's, uh, they love doing a lot of fishing. My son last year shot his first Turkey. Uh, this year I took my eight year old and my five year old Turkey hunting and, Oh my gosh. It was, we had three, we had three long beards come in and I had both boys set up on, they were shooting four tens with TSS and we had them on these tripods. They were using red dots and these three long beards came in and I got so wrapped up in the moment that I forgot to check to make sure that their red dots were either on or bright enough because the sun was right in their eyes. They both shot, they both missed. <laughs> and, but it was fun, you know, and it was hard to like, at first I was like, how did this just happen? <laughs> but it's, it's just an experience, just having fun with them, you know, making sure that they enjoy it because as soon as they're cold or miserable or not having fun, you're going to ruin them on it. In my opinion. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a good point. I mean, we've, we've had articles on that with DU magazine about, you know, snacks to bring and get comfortable clothes and, you know, be prepared to, you know, be prepared to leave early sometimes. I mean, that's, that's hard for some hunters and, um, and that's, that's part of that process. And I'm in the same, in the same boat with the same age group, five and seven, um, yeah. both, both girls and they, they're big into fishing. They always have, I've taken them out to the duck blind on occasion. Um, not a whole lot, but again, I'm, I'm, I kind of following the same route that you are as I, I don't, I want them to want to do it. Yeah. Um, and if they don't want to do it, that's, that's their decision, you know, and I don't want to have to force them to do it and then them resent what they're doing because I'm forcing my oldest one. She, if I tell her the sky is blue, she'd argue anyway. Uh, (laughs) so, you know, I don't want her to tell her, Hey, duck and goose hunting is awesome because then she'll say, no, it's not. Uh, and that's just her, her temperament. Um, but you know, like you said, bring the ducks home, you know, they get to see the ducks, they get to understand, um, the processing of it, that it turns into food, you know, it, and that's, it's all like a very, very slow process for me. Um, It is. And I look at it as like what my kids love doing the most is when we, they love driving boats. They love driving ATVs and side-by-sides. And even when we get out there, they're only going to want to sit in that boat that blind for so long. And then they want to go out and go throw rocks or, you know, build their own fort. And that's just something you got to, you know, just let them enjoy it and have fun. Um, Because it's not a competition. It's not, you know, how many can we get? Um, It's just make sure they're well-fed, they're warm, and whatever they want to do as far, you know, within reason. have fun and just let them do it. And I think you nailed the, you hit the nail right on the head when it's time, when they want to leave early, you need to pack it up and go because 
making them sit out there, you can ruin them really quick. In my opinion, again, I'm still, I'm no expert on this. Yeah. I think that's why I always ask people that I know have kids. Cause it's always, it's, it's a different perspective and it, and it kind of would give our listeners and our audience, you know, maybe someone's going through that right now or it's like, Oh, maybe I should do this, do this or slow down a little bit, or maybe, you know, speed up if they want to. But I have friends who are, you know, 45 years old who are still, you know, their favorite part to do about duck hunting is riding the four wheel or driving the boat. You know, it's like, absolutely. You know, they, I mean, so you got to remember that too. Yeah. I mean, my, still my favorite part is shooting guns and driving boats and ATVs. I mean, I'm not going to lie. And I, you know, no. And that's, so I think a lot of times people feel like, well, I need to get my kids in. If they're old and just because they're old enough to go, doesn't mean they're, they're the time it's, they're at the age in their life when they need to go. Yep. Oh, they that's can a good point. start hunting at any point in time. You know, I mean, they can start a, and a, I just don't feel like that the sooner you get them into it, they're going to be better and hardcore or, you know, I feel like there's like a race on a lot of times people are like, Oh, my eight year old just shot a hunter just shot the biggest buck of his life. Or, you know, my, there's always a race like, Oh, my kid just shot a gobbler at the age of five or four. It's like, come on, you know, just let them, there's not a race to get them into it as early as possible. Yeah. And that's, and that, and I always tell people it's individual. Each individual kid is, you know, prepared for that in a different, at a different time in their life. So uh, keep, but I'll tell you one quick story. Absolutely, um, I, I ruined Absolutely. my daughters uh, for fishing, and and you'll get a kick out of this. So we, you know, we pan fish a lot, bass fish. I got, you know, my seven year old stand on the deck of a boat and you know cast for you know cast a plastic lure. She's she's getting pretty good at it, and and yeah. kind of and really into it. You know, she's starting to understand a little more. Um, so my wife and I, we we go down to Louisiana every year, a couple times. My wife and I would go down there and fish, and so this year and for Thanksgiving, we went down and took the girls down and, uh, we camped down there and, and got a, a buddy of mine who, who guides down there. He took us out. And so I had this five-year-old and this seven-year-old thinking, oh, we're going on a fishing trip. Okay. All right. You know, they, they, they're assuming a fishing trip, like we're going to catch bluegills, you know? Oh, no. So yeah. we're down there and I bet we boated 50 redfish and they probably caught 40 of them. <laughs> and I mean, these were, and you know, these are 25 inch, 28 inch, some thirties. Oh, I mean, these were just stud redfish. Yeah. We've got, you know, we've got pictures of them. We've got our, our whole family photos, like my wife and I holding up big reds, the girls standing there holding <laughs> big redfish. And it was absolutely awesome. And so we get back and, you know, we're packaging up all the, all the fillets and, and we've got these. And my wife looks at me and she's like, you know, we just ruined them for fishing. Right. And I was like, what? Yep. She's like, we just, now if we take them back to, you know, back to up to Memphis and we go fishing at this pond, like th their perspectives on all of this have changed. I was like, man, I never really thought, I just thought it was, Oh, what a great adventure. I mean, it was great that we did it and I wouldn't take it back. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I always laughed. It's like, it's like if you take your kid out and he shoots a massive buck or doubles on turkeys, the first day he's ever been, or, you know, it's like one of those deals like, Oh man, you, you may never have a great experience as great of an experience as this. Exactly. Uh, so. Right. Right. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, before I get you out of here, cause we've been chatting for quite some time here. The, yeah. um, you know, when we started the show, I introduced you as the Yeti hunting ambassador. And, you know, that's something, and I'll be honest, I don't really even know what all that encompasses. I mean, it, obviously you're working with Yeti outdoors, um, in all capacities, but, you know, I kind of want to just get an idea of what that means being a Yeti ambassador. And then also talk about some of the, some of the cool products that, that they have and some of the ways that you use them and some of the things that we've even talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so we started, let's see, I think I started with Yeti probably about, man, what are we going on, four, four years ago, five years ago? Um, Yeti is a brand that, you know, I've always, um, I've always loved their products, but more importantly, what I've always loved the most about them is the people that make Yeti what it is. It's, it's the same thing I've said about DU. Um, doing DU TV for, I think it was what, six seasons straight. When you, you know, when we were traveling to different locations and you meet all the people, all the volunteers, everybody that makes DU what it is, they're all in their own environments from, you know, the up in Minnesota, down to Arkansas, California. Everyone is very passionate about 
waterfowl, hunting, conservation. And that's the exact same thing I see in Yeti. Um, you know, from all the people that I work with, like Sloan Brown, Bill Neff, um, Will Owen, everybody is, they live and breathe the outdoors and they, that same passion goes into their products. Um, so being very blessed and fortunate to see some of the inside stuff on how product development goes and, you know, we'll get, they're always asking. And as far as an ambassador, basically what we do is we just try to give, you know, input on certain products, um, that, fall under the way we would use them. So there's, they have quite a few hunting ambassadors. They have fishing ambassadors, they have cooking music. Um, and what we try to do is just, uh, give honest input on the products and how we like them or how we use them. Um, but I can tell you the people behind the scenes at Yeti, there'll be products that, you know, are in production for years that, they just, they make sure they're right before they ever come to surface. And that's what I love about, and that's kind of, you know, what, what I see in Yeti is a lot of the same mentality that my brother and I put in, um, like with field proven calls is my brother and I, we tune and build every single call and I'm willing to answer for every call that gets shipped out that door to where, you know, if somebody brings it to me and says, I don't like this call. I want to know why, because I can promise you there's no you know, we're not trying to sell a gimmick or anything. It's, I would gladly throw that call in my lanyard and use it. And that's the same thing with Yeti is anybody at Yeti, they know they can go to any show and you see a lot of these people at these shows and they will answer for any product they put out there because nothing, they do not cut corners on anything. And that's what I love about them. Um, but no, as far as the products, man, uh, you know, I was sitting there thinking, I'm like, because Yeti has really expanded on a lot of their stuff um, that they've, you know, they've created since they were just known for coolers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, getting into the the drinkware, the ramblers and the tumblers, and and now you know the luggage. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. the luggage, then the bags that they're creating is it's so over engineered and so you know, like they're they're designed to withstand the abuse that they're never going to see you know, for the most part. Um, and some of their hunting ambassadors, like I know some of the guys in Alaska, I mean, they're like their line of panga bags. They're literally throwing them out of helicopters and they drop them. They throw them out of helicopters and they drop in by boat and they go and find all their gear. Um, and their newest release of luggage, like the Crossroads series, um, it's basically designed for, you know, you're just your average traveler who's, you know, might be going to the airport or their roller bags are designed to fit on, you know, as, uh, as carry on in their backpacks. Um, uh, it's just, and again, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, I don't know the, the technicalities on and what makes them superior. I just know that I haven't been able to break them and I've tried, <laughs> um, but now I was thinking probably, and I was thinking about the question, like what my favorite product is, and it's so hard because I look at, all right, well, I've got the backpack, the, the the crossroads backpack that I literally carry two laptops in and three or four hard drives. Like there's not, there's so much equipment and media and content that I cannot put a price tag on that I put in that bag that it, it just the way the storage is, is absolutely perfect. But the one product that I use more than anything, and there is no dispute whatsoever, is the 18-ounce Rambler bottle with the hot shot cap. Oh, yeah. I'm a coffee addict, and that thing, I think the one I'm using now, I've been using for, oh, gosh, probably three, at least three years. And I'm surprised I haven't lost it yet. I was going to um, say, that that's a lot. I, use, I, mean, I lose them by then. but I lose, oh, my, I, you know, I, like my wife says, if my head wasn't screwed on, I'd lose it. Um, but that's just, and that's the thing. It's just, there's so many products that, that you use on a daily basis and they don't fault. And that's what I love about them. Um, probably my, the, the product I was most excited about that they came out with, um, was the Yeti, uh, loadout go box. Okay. And just being a duck hunter, being, you know, using the boats, I've probably got, I think, five of those boxes, yeah. and they're all packed, and they're always in the boats. Um, 
Yeah, the only problem that I've had with my loadout box is uh, I've got it packed with so much stuff all the time because I had one on my four-wheeler for a while and I kind of transferred it, kind of using it as a base station out of my, out of my truck. And I, I would end up getting so much stuff in it. And I was like, gosh, I got to get something out of this thing. They No, they need to make a bigger one. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Oh, product we development. To, we need to suggest that. They need a bigger one. Um, no, it's uh, – that's and again, that's what I love about – Yeti and the brand is you can't, you literally, you can't put your finger on one product and say, Oh, hands down, that's the best one. Um, and you know, what I really love about a lot of it is, um, so like the, the bottles, the ramblers, all of the caps, you know, all the tops are interchangeable. So it's not like you can, and after, if you do collect like a number of cups and bottles, the lids are all interchangeable. It doesn't matter what size it is. And probably like the Rambler, the the bottle five ounce cup cap, it fits all the bottles. So you can stick it on an 18 ounce bottle. You can stick it on the larger bottles and they're all interchangeable. So when you're someone like me and if I lose the lid to one, <laughs> I know that the other lids are going to work on it. Because, yeah. uh, That's but, handy. But no, like, and I think, you know, I'm a, my area is obviously hunting, but what I really love about from what I've met with a lot of the other ambassadors, um, I've been very fortunate, you know, I was fortunate to meet like uh, Sam Jones. He's one of their barbecue ambassadors and Chris Lilly. And I mean, there's just, there's a hand, there's so many of them and they are just as passionate about barbecue and cooking as like we are with waterfowl, you know, and to be able to talk to people that are, you know, that have their area of expertise and something that, and again, I love doing barbecue. I'm the furthest thing from an expert, but to talk, you know, and, and you and I, we talk to a lot of passionate waterfowl hunters, but to be able to talk to somebody that is so passionate about barbecue and you know, you just, you know, you can see that love and passion for what they do. And again, that's how, that's what Yeti does is they, you know, they, they just, they love working with people that are just very passionate because they know all their customers are the same way. Um, their customers expect that type of performance and their customers are just as passionate about waterfowl hunting as we are. They're passionate about barbecue and music and, um, it's just a great brand. I mean, it's just, yeah, I know you've, you've, uh, you've, you've tested out that, the camp chair. Um, yes, that, that's, that's top of my list right now. Um, oh, that's, man. uh, that, that's a pretty solid camp chair and, and I, I keep a couple of them in my RV. Um, so we're rolling around with those things and they're, they're comfortable or easy. It just, like you said, over engineered, obviously. Um, yeah, but yeah, man, that's, those things are certainly at the top of my list. So the camp chair, it's funny you brought those up because a buddy of mine, um, him and a group of his friends, um, uh, are very passionate and avid, uh, whitetail hunters. And a lot of their sets, they do a lot of tree stand hunting with client or climber stands and lock-ons, but they also have a number of, uh, redneck blinds. Well, they had been fighting, trying to figure out a good chair for the redneck blinds. And he came to me and said, Hey, I want to get, I'm um, thinking about putting Yeti chairs in these redneck blinds. And I'm like, it's not a blind chair. And he said, look, and I, I didn't even think about it, but when you can unfold the the chair and you sit in it, I've, you, there are no squeaks. There is no, there is no noise. There is nothing. And we actually did a couple all day sits last year. I was videoing. He was after this, this monster whitetail and we did an all day sitting on the rednecks. And honestly, I, that Yeti chair was very welcoming. I mean, because they, again, they're very comfortable and you can, they, you know, they shoot out of them and they're just, they're a great blind chair. And I never, they're not advertised as a blind chair. They're not marketed that way. Um, but in those redneck blinds, they are the perfect blind chair. Yeah, that's a, that's a good idea. And you're right. They're not squeaking or anything. And I've got other chairs that, you know, make so much noise when you're opening or closing them. And that's, that's a good point. I never thought about that either. That makes perfect sense though. Well, cool, Phil. This has been great. Um, it's been a good conversation and uh, we're certainly going to have to have you come back on, um, whether later this summer or, or even in the fall, we'll definitely have to keep touching base with you and, and make you a regular on the show. Absolutely, man. I'd love to. And you need to get back to Indiana or even come over here to uh, the land of few ducks and geese, but we can, we can chase them anyway. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm always down for that. I'm always down. <laughs> 
Well, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me on. I'd like to thank my guest, Field Hudnall, the owner of Field Proven Calls and a Yeti hunting ambassador for joining us today and talking about duck hunting, talking about his kids and getting into duck hunting and talking about Yeti products. I'd like to thank our producer, Clay Baird, for doing a great job of getting the podcast together and getting it out to you. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us and supporting wetlands conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.